Thank you, Greg. Would you guys open your Bibles to 1 John, uh, the book of 1 John, chapter 1. We're beginning a new sermon series through this little letter of 1 John, uh, beginning this weekend. And we'll be reading uh, just the first four verses today. So 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It reads like this. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make Your name holy in this time and place now. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. O Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. As a a boy, as a young man, everlasting life kind of scared me. Uh, When I would think about heaven, I felt a profound sense of emptiness and, and secret dread. If the reward of heaven were, as I imagined it at the time, just enriched versions of the things that we like here on earth, it didn't seem like that could possibly satisfy me for forever. I didn't really, it didn't really seem like something I wanted any part of. Even though it, it did seem far better than hell or uh, some disembodied ghostly experience or even reincarnation, which were all the like, things I thought of at the time, I guess. I longed for something more, but not just more and more of the same. I wanted something qualitatively more, not just quantitatively more. I couldn't articulate it at the time, but now I realize that I didn't just long for life without end, but I longed for something that would make such a life worth living. And I know now that it's not something, but someone. I didn't just want an eternal life. I wanted eternal life himself. And he not only makes the life to come worth living, but he makes all of life worth living. C.S. Lewis talks about the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing that we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. This unappeasable want that he talks about, the thing desired before and after everything else is God himself. Our unquenchable thirst is for the fountain of living waters. As the psalmist says, as the deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants for my soul for you, O God. This is true before we know him, but we suppress it. And it's all the more true after we know him. I was talking with someone recently who was honestly questioning the the purpose of heaven. 
they didn't, why is it necessary? They didn't feel like they needed it. And it's not a position I hear often, but it is one I sympathized with because of my own story and struggle. But I once knew why they thought that way. Because they didn't yet know in a true and deep, soul-satisfying way the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. As Matthew Henry once said, where there is true grace, there is always a desire for more grace. I know this to be true because that's what changed my heart on the issue. To have Christ and to really know him is to want more of him. If you know him, then when you hear him say in Ephesians 2 that in the coming ages he wants to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us who believe, then your heart longs for and hopes for and desires that. You want that. And you know, even if you can't comprehend it, that the riches of his grace truly are immeasurable and that partaking of his grace will be eternally good. So why am I talking about this? Because in this text that we read, just in the first two verses, the text I'm preaching from, Jesus is called the life. He's called the word of life. He's called eternal life. So we should not think of eternal life as something Jesus gives us. But instead, Jesus himself is eternal life and he gives us himself. We often want to segregate the benefits of salvation from the person of Jesus. And we want to talk about, we, we, want, we desire heaven just merely to avoid hell or to see other departed loved ones or just to live some more because that's just what we do. And those are all fine and good, but they aren't the main thing. Jesus is the point of heaven. I remember as a young Christian being asked a really striking question. If you could have heaven... With endless comfort, peace, family, friends, food, fun, but Jesus wasn't there. Would you still want it? And if your answer is yes, then you're missing the whole point. Because this is why why people think that they can pray a prayer and then Jesus hands them eternal life. And then they can take it from his hand and then run away from him and and live without him without any consequence. It's just a fundamental misunderstanding. Eternal life is Jesus. Jesus is eternal life. The only way to have eternal life is in fellowship with Jesus who is our life. It's not something he gives you. It is him. J.C. Ryle once spoke of people who talk about going to heaven when they die, but they don't really care all that much about Jesus. He says, you, you, give no, you give Christ no honor here. You have no communion with him. You do not love him. Alas, what could you do in heaven? It would be no place for you. Its joys would be no joys for you. Its happiness would be no happiness into which you could enter. Its employments would be a weariness and a burden to your heart. Jesus is the joy of heaven. Jesus is the light of heaven and the life of heaven. So union with him in and his resurrection life is what eternal life is. This is why as we reflect on our salvation, it's much better not to look to some point in the past, but to ask myself, am I really loving and trusting Jesus today? Because if you really did receive eternal life, 
What that means is an ongoing and everlasting fellowship with life himself. Jesus Christ. Jesus said so. In that prayer that he prayed for his disciples right before he went to die for them, he tells to the Father, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing God in Christ is eternal life. This is why in Jeremiah 9, God says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And Jeremiah puts his finger on something. Because the world will try to convince you of another way to really live. I mean, you know those phrases like, that's the life. Now you're really living. That's the good life. Being better and smarter and more capable than other people. That's the free and good life. Being really powerful and successful and well-known. Now that's really living. Being rich enough to buy whatever you want, whenever you want. Now that's the good life. That's the life. But is that really life at all? Listen to what Paul says to his apprentice Timothy as he teaches him how to pastor rich people. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Now catch this, this is what I really want you to hear. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. When he says truly life, that means that any other way of life is not actually life at all. God actually is life. And you haven't even learned to live unless you experience him and have fellowship with him. And his love and his recognition and his freedom and his joy, they are infinitely greater than any that the world can offer. Because only in him can you really and truly live. This is the powerful note that John starts this letter with. But it's not just how he begins this letter of 1 John. It's also near the end of of this book. It's in in the last chapter, in chapter 5, he says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. To truly live is to have Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't just give us things or benefits. He gives us himself. Not as a deaf and dumb idol, but he gives us himself as a real and living person to be in relationship with. And this is how we ought to understand grace. Because we all know that definition that grace is a gift, which is a good one, but it's a little bit lacking, isn't it? Because if I give someone a wrapped gift, what's the thing they ask usually? They say, what is it? Right? And if you say it's a gift, they say, well, I know that, right? I, 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 it's this classic dad joke. But I wanna, he, I, they'll say, I want to know what the gift is, right? So grace is a gift, of course. But what is it? We 
Grace is a gift, yes, an undeserved free gift, but what is it? It's not a power or a force. It's not an impersonal benefit. It is a person giving himself to us in love. Grace is the self-giving of God. God gives himself to you. Grace is receiving the very life of God. This is why John says in verse 3 that the aim of the preaching of the apostles is that we may have fellowship with the Father and His Son. That is the goal of Christ being manifest, he says, of Christmas and of Easter, that we may have fellowship with God. And now the English word fellowship has become a little bit lacking in connotations, hasn't it? I mean, for a lot of us, if we play that word association game, as soon as I say fellowship, you say what? Food, yeah. I was thinking hall, fellowship hall. But yeah, it's a similar thing. The word translated fellowship, though, is koinonia. Some of the older theologians speak of this reality as communion, which is why we sometimes call the Lord's Supper communion. Because when the Apostle Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, he uses the same word, uh, koinonia. In 1 Corinthians, he says, the cup of blessing, talking about the cup of the Lord's Supper, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a koinonia in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a koinonia in the body of Christ? Koinonia is participation, it's communion, it's fellowship. I'll talk more about that word in just a few minutes, but for now, I just want you to know it's beyond just believing and obeying. It's experiencing him as we believe and obey. John is telling us that that is open to us, but too often we settle for less. We are what A.W. Tozer calls too easily satisfied religionists. He says, to have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love, scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionists, but justified in happy experience by the children of the burning heart. We can be too easily satisfied religionists, but I want us to be children of the burning heart. And our hearts are set ablaze through communion with the Almighty, through intimacy an experience of intimacy with the infinite. Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician who laid the groundwork. He was kind of a genius. He laid groundwork for the theory of probabilities and statistics and invented an early calculator and did all kinds of stuff, dabbled in theology. And after he died in his most worn jacket was found a piece of parchment sewn into it. It was a journal entry that said this. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23 November, Feast of Clement, from about half past ten at night until about half past midnight, fire. 
God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. You may not know this, but Pascal is one of the most eloquent French writers. And as you can tell, this experience overwhelmed his eloquence. He could just write down wild phrases. He came to know what was unknowable, to grasp the incomprehensible, which is exactly what Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. I've been in, in, in Ephesians 3, I've been meditating on this prayer a lot and, uh, lately, and I prayed a portion of it over you all who were here on our Maundy Thursday service. Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. To comprehend its depth and be filled with the fullness of God. Here's the strange thing. He's, he's praying this for Christians. This isn't a prayer for salvation. It's a prayer for Christians to have life-altering, soul-enlarging experience of deep, authentic communion with their incomprehensibly great God of love. This is what God invites us into in fellowship with Him. It's not always as dramatic as Blaise Pascal's journal entry. I suppose that's why he carried it around with him everywhere he went, to remember during all those other times. But I, do, I like to think of communion with God a lot like how C.S. Lewis described his marriage. He wrote, I feasted on love, every mode of it, solemn and merry, romantic and realistic, sometimes as dramatic as a thunderstorm, sometimes as comfortable and unemphatic as putting on your soft slippers. There's different modes of intimacy and love, he says. And I think that's a valuable lesson for us. And we should feast on all of them, the solemn and the merry, the dramatic and the unemphatic, the romantic and the realistic. And I think that last one is a similar balance to what John is talking about when he starts off this letter with these rock-solid statements of fact. I mean, listen, in verse 1, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, and that which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And then he talks about this mystical communion with the Father, which he makes very clear later in the letter that no one has ever seen. He's saying that this fellowship is based on reality and truth, but it's more than just facts. It's facts on fire. It's understanding and it's affections. Affections is an old word for what we love and long for. We need to have both. Because understanding without affections becomes cold formality. 
And affections without understanding becomes empty superstition. God is seeking and making worshipers in spirit and in truth. And there's another uh, similarity to marriage. Uh, because in, our, in marriage, our union is unalterable. We are united before God. But our communion in that union can wax and wane, ebb and flow. In sin, we can hinder communion with our spouses. And we can hinder communion with God as well when other things get in the way. In both relationships, we are called to continual repentance and restored fellowship. So back to that word fellowship. If we understand this biblical word, we can understand how to practice it and experience it, I hope, and I think. The Greek word is, is koinonia, and it's one of my favorite words in, in Scripture. It, but like all words, it has what we call a lexical range, a range of meaning. So I want to look at some of the words in that range that are maybe a little bit more familiar to us to help us understand what fellowship or communion looks like. I don't have time to go through all that this word encompasses, so I'm going to uh, compact it into two categories. First, koinonia means sharing and partaking. Sharing and partaking. A generous, selfless, communal sharing of life and possessions. As well as partaking of that generosity and sharing. Like in Acts 2, when it says that the church devoted themselves to fellowship, koinonia, and they had everything in common. And in Hebrews 13, it says, Do not neglect to do good and to share, koinonia, what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In 2 Peter 1.4, I love this, when it says that we become partakers, koinonia, of the divine nature. And when Paul talks about sharing in the sufferings of Christ, in Philippians 3, koinonia. So as we think about koinonia with God, we are invited into a relationship of open-handed generosity, of giving and receiving, of partaking and participating. He gives of himself to us and shares his very life with us. He gives us his all, his love, his attention, his people, his possessions. He tells us we are heirs with Christ of everything God owns, and God owns everything. From a worldly perspective, though, in a relationship like koinonia, there are clear winners and losers. Those who have little win, those who have much lose. And the world looks down on those who have little as takers. And it looks at those who have much in, in two ways. First, it puffs them up. And if we're not careful, we adopt the world's perspective and our pride will keep us from living as we truly are. The poor and the needy ones. We have to live in constant humility to draw on the resources God freely offers us in this fellowship. We cannot live the Christian life in our own power. We must continually ask for and receive His grace. But in a koinonia relationship, the world looks at it and also sees those who have much as suckers and fools. But Jesus taught us better because he tells us that it is not losing to be able to give more. So we too are called to have open hands in this relationship of koinonia. 
to see all that we have as Christ's, to see all that we are as Christ's. We, you know, we do not serve him as though he needed anything from us. The Bible makes that very clear, but we do share our lives with him as though we were truly and deeply one with each other. We are one with him. So we don't just bring him out at certain times in our lives when we're desperate or when we're feeling particularly religious. No, we put him on like an astronaut wears a spacesuit, and this world is a planet whose atmosphere is toxic to us. We put him on as our, our own atmosphere and we, that we breathe in and move in and see through, as our lifeline, as our covering, as our lens through which we see everything. We partake of him. We share in his life. And the second meaning now of koinonia is partnership and friendship. In Philippians 1, Paul says that he thanks God for that church because of their partnership, koinonia, with him in the gospel. In 2 Corinthians, he says of his apprentice Titus, he is my partner, koinonia, and fellow worker for your benefit. And in that beautiful chapter 10 of Hebrews that I love so much, where the author is recalling that, that previously strong faith of those that he's writing to, and he says, you were sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners, koinonia, with those so treated. It's this meaning where I really like the term fellowship, because I think of fellowship uh, of the ring, from Lord of the Rings. And I think of Samwise and Frodo and their partnership and friendship as they face harrowing circumstances for a common cause of greater good. And that is true fellowship. That is koinonia. It says, what can we achieve together rather than what can I get from you? It's being supportive and helpful and contributing. It's camaraderie. And God in Christ says, I am with you like this. I'm for you as your partner, arm in arm, yoked together, working together, fighting together, advancing together. And it goes even deeper into true friendship. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus calls us friends. But what is, do you notice what the distinction Jesus makes between a servant and a friend is? Communication. They're friends because of how he's communicated to them. Friendship is about communication and affection. Sometimes that's all it is. When I lived far away for several years, first at culinary school and then at uh, seminary, and me and my best friend Brad Lewis, we, we remained very close because Brad, much more than me, was diligent to call and to talk. And sometimes he would call me at like 3 in the morning right when he got off his shift, and I would kind of hate him, but it kept us close. We talked with each other just because we loved and liked each other. And that's how we relate with God. That's why it's misleading to talk about whether prayer works or not. Prayer is not, it's not about it working. But, and also, no, prayer doesn't work. God works. Prayers are not magical spells. They are a part of a conversation, which is a part of a relationship. Don't get me wrong. God is a giver, and he loves it when we ask. 
But there's a difference between being a loving and generous father and a distant benefactor. True friendship, in other words, is not networking. Networking is full of posturing and half-hidden agendas, always asking, what can I get out of this? But if you treat your friends like that, they won't be your friends for long. Real friendship is spending time and communicating with a loved one. And therefore, so is real prayer. But also listening. Hearing from him. Again, listening to a friend is different than listening to a lecture. You're not just listening to get facts uh, to pass some test, but to hear their heart. To know what you can do to bless them and love them and partner with them. To know them better and more deeply as an end in itself, just in order to have deeper communion. This is how we listen to God. And if you really want it to be a conversation, it can be. You hear him from him through his word, and then don't just go pray about something else. But pray about what he's just told you. Think about it. Ask him to move it from your head into your heart. He is the wiser friend in this relationship, and he knows it. So don't think friendship means we're equals. He wants us to cherish and meditate on his words to us. Ask questions. That's what you would do with a wise friend. Here's a few I like to ask. In light of this truth, how can I praise you and humble myself? What are you saying to me personally, and why do you want me to know it now? And this is one I always ask when I prepare sermons. How is this good news? Because it's not always clear at first, especially with commands. Sometimes they feel like a weight or a burden, but it's all good news. And and so ask, how is it good news? And wrestle with it and wait for the answer. Martin Luther, here's just one example I love from this. Martin Luther underwent a spiritual experience and transformation that made him into the man who would spark the Protestant Reformation. And that breakthrough happened through wrestling with the text in Romans, in particular with the idea of the righteousness of God. He struggled with how the righteousness of God was good news to him. Because even though he lived as a very upright monk, his conscience was restless, and he knew that he did not live up to the righteousness of God. And that God's very righteousness and justice would be what condemned him in his sin. So he wondered, how is that good news? But as he, he patiently and prayerfully pursued an answer to how God's righteousness is good news, his, the eyes of his, hearts, of his heart became enlightened. And he saw, not that we must live up to it, but that God gives us his righteousness as we live by faith. Because God's justice was satisfied in the work of Jesus Christ. And we who have inherited Martin Luther's legacy of interpretation, we may see this as foundational and as elementary, but it had been lost in significant ways in the church of his time. And it was recovered, how? Through a man honestly and earnestly seeking fellowship with his God. And as you engage with God as a wise friend and partner, it's not just quiet time, though that's very important. It's more, it's all of life. I mean, Jesus did. He relentlessly pursued times of quiet and solitude with his Father. But he also walked with him through all of life. And he had a word for it. He called it abiding in him. And he calls us to abide in him. In his love. 
For apart from him, we can do nothing, he tells us. We depend on him for hourly supplies of wisdom, strength, and comfort. There's a poem I like that says, There are no unsacred places, only sacred places and desecrated places. What I think he's saying is that God's presence is everywhere. And so all of life is made sacred. It's, his presence is either being welcomed and remembered or it's being shunned and forgotten. And now this sharing, partaking, partnering friendship is the essence of fellowship or communion with God. But John also makes it clear that fellowship with God is intimately connected with fellowship with other people who are in fellowship with God. In verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It's kind of like that uh, Spice Girls song. I don't know if any of you listen to the Spice Girls. I remember listening to it in like second grade with my sister. The one that says, if you want to be my lover, you got to get with my friends. You know that one? No? Right. Now, now I, don't, I don't want to get too deep into Spice Girls interpretation. But what I, think, what I think they mean is that the Spice Girls are so closely knit together that if you, someone wants a relationship with one of the Spice Girls, then they need to learn to befriend and care for all the other Spice Girls. Otherwise, the relationship will never work. And in a similar way, that is how we have communion with God. That's that's the way fellowship with God is. If you want to be with Him, you've got to get with His friends. At the end of Ephesians 1, we read that the church is called the fullness of Jesus who fills all in all. And that is a remarkable statement that we should take seriously. Fellowship with Jesus must mean fellowship with his body, his fullness. I I feel, I feel the love of God. That's when I experience it is through my brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I see his truth more fully and more clearly when I see it through the eyes of my brothers and sisters in Christ as well as my own. I'm more dependent on God when I labor in intercession for their needs as well as for my own. I'm more grateful to God when I'm thanking God for what he's doing in their lives as well as when I'm thanking him for what he's doing in mine. You see what I'm saying? this, This is the only path to complete joy. There's a beautiful and surprising phrase in verse 4. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Does that strike you? It strikes me. You expect him to say, we're writing these things so that your joy may be complete. But he says, I'm telling you this to complete my joy. Which may sound a little selfish at first, but then when you think about it, it's actually a sweet sign of affectionate relationship. Like if my daughter wants to tell me about her day because it makes her happy to talk to me, I'm much more honored than if she did it for any other reason. And John says that his joy is incomplete, in a sense. It's lacking something. What is it lacking? It's lacking these other people sharing in it. 
For his joy to be complete, he needs the koinonia of these other Christians. He needs them to share in his joy. And this isn't just true of the Apostle John. He's just wiser than us, wise enough to see it. Here's the truth in a principle. The collective and communal joy of the church in God is the completion of the joy of individual Christians. We are missing something. We are incomplete if we don't koinonia in joy with the church. I know I've, I've already done this a couple times, but I think another marriage illustration is helpful because I've, I've known Audrey now, we've been friends now for almost 20 years, and I, we've been married for almost five, and we have experienced profound koinonia in that time. We begin to share each other's perspectives and, and partake in each other's joy. And when I experience something when she's not around, I instinctively know how she would feel, how she would think and respond. And it, not perfectly, but it's there. I actually experience that as well as my own response. I'm enlarged and completed by her being in my heart, by our communion. But not only that, I I often feel like I need her actually to experience it with me for my experience to be complete. I need to tell her about it. I want her to laugh with me, rejoice with me. Otherwise, it's missing something. And this is the way we commune with God and with his church. Paul at one point tells the Corinthian church, I love it, he says, to make room for us in your hearts. And then he tells them a couple verses later, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. We are to reside in one another's hearts. We were made this way because the church and not the individual Christian is the body of Christ. And if you think back to those different meanings of koinonia, they really begin to make sense in light of this, don't they? The idea of sharing and partaking, of partnership and friendship, of really experiencing him. These realities come to life through fellowship with Jesus' people. We share selflessly with one another and partake and participate in each other's lives and joys. We partner together in the mission of the church and we, we commune as true friends who are with one another and are for one another. What is a worship service but speaking to him together and hearing from him through his word preached together and communing together in the Lord's Supper? And and in this worship service, through this text, Jesus invites you into fellowship with him. Those of you who do not know him and have never experienced his grace. Those of you who have distanced yourself from the body, the church, Those of you who only have intellectual ideas but no deep experience or affections. Those of you who know him and are united to him but have drifted from communion with him. Fellowship with him is open to you. Come to him. Commune with him. He is eternal life. He is true life. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, would you wake us up to your reality and remove the idols and the obstacles that get in our way of fellowship with you? Make us generous sharers, humble partakers, 
passionate partners and loving friends with your Son and His body through your Spirit. Strengthen our inner being to know in a real way your incomprehensible love and fill our hearts with your fullness. We pray this in Jesus' mighty, loving name. Amen.